Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Profiling Evil Live. I'm Mike King, and it is awesome to be with you. We're going to get right go- going right away with this thing. Choir practice is designed to be unscripted. We're going to just have some fun. We're going to talk to some amazing people, and we might even get a little bit emotional as we talk about some pretty tough subjects from time to time. I want to bring in my co-host tonight, Mark Safrick, former FBI special agent, former profiler, Mark and I met many years ago, and uh, he's been on the show a number of times. It's just so great to have you here, Mark. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's been quite a while. It, it has. I think uh, we either had to quit taking life so serious or something, but uh, yeah, yeah. usually you're like totally some toddling or whatever, some kind of a drink, but I know I've got you late at night tonight. Yeah, it's, it's, it's after 10 o'clock. Yeah, it's, it's past that time. Well, we're going to get rolling. I want to bring in a special guest that you and I have been looking forward to talking to. It is uh, Officer Dion Joseph. And Dion, welcome to Profiling Evil Choir Practice. It's so good to have you back with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be back again. It's been a long time. It's great. And you and Mark have had a chance to say hello. And we're going to just have like free scripted chatter. But we got to start right off the bat. What on earth does choir practice mean from a guy in the hood from your police department? Well, for me, that statement kind of means people of like minds talking about the same issues and coming up with the same problem, same solutions in their own silo. And that's an issue because what has to happen is when you talk about choir practice, you do nothing when you're practicing amongst lot, not, uh, like-minded people. Nothing changes. We just all sit there and agree and shake hands and go out the beer. Uh, but when we become amplified voices and practice those in the public square, and I'm talking about individuals who are actually touching the issues, like first responders, military, who are touching the ground level. When we do it, we can help guide the public who have gone too far left and too far right and bring them to the center so we can make better decisions on how to help society. So that's what it means to me. That's awesome. You know, and I think back, Mark, Joseph Wambaugh, former LAPD officer yeah. and became an author, actually in the in one of his books uh, That's where, yeah. wrote about choir practice. And it was a group of, I think, about 10 rookie officers who were going through their rookie season in the PD. And after the shift, they would get together and they would talk about the kinds of things they experienced and uh, the emotion they experienced. They had to complain about their bosses, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look back in your career. What was choir practice for you? I mean, you know, having been a cop before I was an agent, you know, even when I lecture to law enforcement, you know, I I always talk about uh, I, I was an FBI agent with a cop's mentality. 
for me, it's always been about sort of this tribal wisdom, you know, that is shared among individuals who are dealing with the same difficult issues on a daily basis. And, you know, you learn from one another, you learn about the issues that they deal with, they learn about the issues you deal with, and then how do you address those issues? And how do you fix things? And how do you solve things? And you you learn information from, I mean, I, I've, I've done this so many times, you know, in the Bureau, these kinds of um, conversations with other individuals who give you a different perspective. For me, that's, that's the choir practice. And I, I mean, it's a great way of learning and, and, um, and developing yourself. That's awesome. Dion, you, you've been a police officer for a couple of decades, if not 25 years, and you have an incredibly unique job nowadays. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background and how long you've been doing this? Well, I got 28 years on in my agency. I can't say what agency that is, but it's somewhere in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> and I work in a place called Skid Row. Uh, 28 years. I'm getting close to two more years from being a, what I call a triple OG, 30 years. But uh, I've been working uh, uh, in my agency for 28 years. Started off at Venice Beach, Palm Trees, Beautiful Lady, Sunday afternoon. Then I ended up getting kind of a shock to my system when I got uh, transferred to Skid Row. Uh, when I got off uh, probation, and there is where I found my true calling. Uh, initially, after having an aversion to it, realizing or feeling that I could not change it, but then after seeing true, genuine injustice—not the woke definition of injustice—but real uh, uh, marginalized individuals being victimized on a routine basis and getting no justice, I found my calling. And uh, for those of you guys who don't know who Skiro is, and please. Cut me off if I'm going too long because I get passionate about this. Uh, Skid Row is a recovery zone, and it's in the city of Los, city of Los Angeles, and it has about 50 blocks, 108 program designed to help the homeless with multiple issues. Uh, I mean, you know, drug counseling, alcohol addiction, housing, uh, shelter, domestic violence, you name it, it's there. The issue is it's in the center uh, of a city that's adjacent to places like Inglewood, Compton, Watts, uh, uh, South LA, Pasadena. And when these individuals have to come to Skid Row because no other place in town will take them for help, okay, because usually wherever else you go, you have to pay, uh, the criminal element from those cities follow them and they come down and they prey upon the people of Skid Row and make it impossible for them to break the cycle of addiction. And they love keeping the people on an endless spiral of addiction to obviously pad their pockets and exploit uh, the community. So I felt like they needed somebody to stand up for them. And myself and many other officers there are doing the best we can with what we have. The only problem is we are uh, being told to go fight these issues within the homeless community of crime uh, with the justice system now fighting us. And it's the most disheartening thing I'd ever seen in almost 30 years. Incredible. I, and and Mark, I, I'm sure you've got some questions that are starting to already build up in your mind. But Jan, one of the things that you taught me, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago that really resonated and I think has been something that has driven the way I look at many of these communities where there are um, massive homeless camps and other kinds of things, is you said bringing sandwiches every day isn't helping. Mm-mm. Talk talk a little bit about that. And folks, uh, by the way, uh, let me just say, folks, uh, we're, we're talking with Dion Joseph, a, a police officer working in Skid Row, 
We can't name the police department that he works for, but you can figure it out if you figure out where Skid Row is. And if you have questions for Dion, I'm going to be kind of reading the chat while we go along. Along with me is Mark Safrick, retired FBI special agent and profiler and a frequent guest on Profiling Evil. And, and just throw your questions in here. But Dion, I'll, I'll pitch that back to you now. Yeah, and just to give it some some uh, background, I've worked it in a uh, uh, as a training officer, a patrol officer. Uh, I've also worked it two and a half years as an undercover officer, and now I'm the lead officer in charge of their safety. Uh, uh, you know, along with other officers trying to help them. So I've been trying to find solutions, not just with crime, but with quality of life. And I know you mentioned the sandwiches. I know when you talk to many people, especially wonderful people of faith. I'm a person of faith. I'm a proud, born again Christian. Love Jesus with all my heart. So the casket drops, right? <laughs> That's never going to change. But I believe that he doesn't just give us faith. He also gives us wisdom and discernment. And you wouldn't realize that your act of faith are actually hurting people. Instead of helping them, you have to change. So what I would see in Skid Row constantly for, for the, uh, many years was good and well-intentioned individuals coming down to Skid Row thinking they're going to change somebody's life with a sandwich or a hamburger or a plate of chicken. And it didn't work. It actually made the area worse. Here's how. Uh, there are five shelters in, in the Skid Row area, right? Uh, they serve about 12,000 meals a day, okay? And they offset their hours. So if you miss the meal at one mission, you can go to the next. They do it on purpose. So nobody ever misses a meal uh, in Skid Row. Uh, they also give out clothes, uh, you know, as needed in Skid Row. So you'll never see anybody naked in Skid Row or starving. But what happens, we have people who come into Skid Row with a 30,000 foot vision of what Skid Row is uh, based on what someone told them. And they go down there and hand things out in the street. And here's what happens. The individuals gets the, gets the sandwich or the clothing. They take one bite of the sandwich and toss it in the street because they've already eaten. Or the clothes you give them, they kind of gather up and hoard or even fight over when you leave. And they line it up on the sidewalk to sell it to make enough money to do what? destroy themselves by buying crack cocaine. So I, I tell people is, I never tell people to stop giving. Please continue to come down and share your heart, but give with the intention to de-incentivize the streets, not to incentivize the streets. And how you do that is hygiene kits. Give them something that'll guide them to the shelters so they may take a shower and have a sobering moment and say, you know what, maybe I need to check into this program and get better. Okay, uh, and in the hygiene kits, simple, soap, uh, uh, shaving cream, shaver, deodorant, uh, feminine hygiene products, uh, ooh, uh, hand sanitizer, that's fantastic. And the only two clothing items I suggest you put in those uh, uh, hygiene kits are underwear and socks. The rest, the missions can provide. Let the professionals do the job that they're there for, because when you do that, you're only incentivizing them to stay in the streets. And just, why would I need to go into the mission and get a sandwich when I get fed on the streets and continue to destroy myself with crack cocaine and heaven forbid, heaven forbid fentanyl, which is killing so many people right now? Well, I just think it's a such a multifaceted problem. I know um, having worked a lot of cases uh, in the Los Angeles area with the LADA's office and um, LAPD, RHD, um, you know, and, and I've been down there for trials many times, you know, staying down in that area. And it's tough, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a multidimensional problem. And I think I'm not sure how you address the mental health you know, concerns and mental health issues, those, those kinds of issues need, you know, attention on a daily basis. So I, I, 
food, clothing, shelter, mental health, someone to, to stay on top of these things for these individuals. It's got to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. And it is a challenge. So like I said, my, my thing I tell people, I'm not telling you not to help. Just be right. uh, more diligent about acquiring knowledge about how. Go take a tour through some of the major missions downtown. I can mention them. I'm off duty. Union Rescue Mission, incredible organization that helps uh, uh, families, men, women, and children. Midnight Mission, incredible organization. They're a secular mission. They're not faith-based. You have the LA Mission, great job programs. They're actually uh, uh, blazing her trail by partnering with drug programs in their facility. Uh, you have these great organizations that are doing the work. So take a tour and figure out how you can volunteer and be a part. And even if you feel you can't volunteer, give them the money, give them the thing that they need so they can right. continue to sustain and continue to help people. But once again, uh, uh, you, you cannot come into the, well, you can, it's not illegal. It's just not wise. You're doing more harm than good uh, when you feed them in the street. And that makes it's just, sense. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, it's interesting to me, Dion. I remember also as we were talking, um, you know, I, I I come from Salt Lake City, and and we don't have the problems you have there. Although, like Mark, I, I was fortunate to to uh, help build pieces and parts of your real time crime center. I did the same in New York City and many other major cities, and understand uh, know have known every chief you've had since Daryl Gates, who was uh, the day before he retired, I was sitting in his office. And, and the thing that you really taught me too that, that really stuck out to me is that when you go down there, you're in this really interesting position because you represent the government, you represent law enforcement, and yet you have people walking up and kissing you and thanking you for looking out after them, calling you <coughs> their father. I mean, that is remarkable to me. Yeah, uh, that's a blessing. And that's a gift that uh, I have to give uh, all thanks to a my creator, uh, my faith. I'm a big uh, person of faith. And, and I try to follow that way. My parents who instilled that in me through their walk of helping the homeless, 41 foster children, mending marriages, literally healing the sick and raising the dead whenever they could. <laughs> Those are my parents. So, uh, you know, when I first got to Skid Row, I did try to do it the old fashioned way, arrest every bad guy I could possibly find, which is noble. There's nothing wrong with that, especially when you have a system that supports you in doing that. That's a great way to go. But when you realize you're working in a system that that doesn't support you in that, you have to find other ways. And the other way was to be visible to the community, gain their trust, become like family to them. You know, uh, before I left a bad taste in people's mouth for my first seven years, because all they saw was me showing up opening the back of my patrol car and throwing uh, people into the uh, backseat of my car. And they all look like the same color because 80% of the Skid Row population is African-American. So the perception was, I hate black people, <laughs> which is wrong. I love, wow. I love I love being black, it's beautiful. I don't want to change <laughs> anytime soon. But I knew what these individuals were doing, but because I didn't have time as a patrol officer to stop and explain myself as to why I'm doing this for you, not to you, it left a bad taste. So when I became a, a lead officer, and promoted as the main liaison, uh, something told me to just get out, walk the beach, stop arresting for a second and get to know the people. And I started talking to people and you find out there's a silent majority in Skid Row who actually want to support you. They just don't trust you because of everything they've, that's been, they, they've been seeing on the news, 
you know, all these incidents that they keep putting together, this montages of police abuse and shoving it in their face, saying that this is what policing is. So I really had to stop and be present. I found being present was more effective in reducing crime than actually arresting people and then being gone for three or four hours processing someone where during that three or four hours, people are being victimized because I'm not there. So I stayed present and I discovered that most people wanted the police to be visible. They wanted them there. And then I started getting to know their stories and who they were. And these people would just come up to me and just talk to me. Hey, thank you for this. Uh, you've had this block clean for like four months. And because you had this block clean for four months, I've been clean for four months because some people want to get better. They just don't have an environment that's conducive to change so that the influence of a service provider that are desperately trying to help them can have more of an influence than the criminal element. So I feel like the law enforcement position in that area should be, we create the environment conducive to change so that the service provides to bring. And when I took that mentality, uh, we saw, uh, along with my fellow officers, we had a 40% drop in all crime. Death reduced 33%. Uh, and people generally, for the most part, accepted what we were doing because they understood. Now we understand where it's coming from. You're not trying to hurt us as the activists were conditioning them to believe. You're actually making it better for it. Here was the result. More people graduating from drug programs, less guns and drugs coming into the programs, less women being raped in tents. Like I said, if you can't see them, you can't save them. Less people, over, and I have data to back this up. I know you don't have time to go over data, but uh, 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 but less people overdosing in tents. And we had that place uh, relatively safe from 2006 to about 2011 until, of course, laws change and the, the uh, social justice movement took over the justice system. And everything got reversed, and now we're right back to where we were. And what makes it more dangerous now? The justice system is fighting us, and we can't. We can't. For the most part, we can't stop it. We can't put that violent suspect in jail for a long enough period of time for the community to feel a sense of relief. We can't put those drug dealers away for a long enough period of time to at least deter some of them from the activity. And as a result, it's really trying on the homeless. And now fentanyl. It's just killing so many people. And, but I don't want to talk too much. I'll let you guys respond to that. Yeah, I think that I, I, I just know that the justice system, especially in California, has really started, has been working against law enforcement. You know, back when you were making all those arrests, at least you could keep people in jail for a period of time. But now, I mean, making an arrest, they're, they're back out before the paperwork is even processed. So there's no consequences for being arrested. Uh, it's, I just can't imagine. It's got to be incredibly tough to to do what you do. But your presence on the street, like the beat cops walk in the street rather than, you know, being in a patrol vehicle, I think is really, uh, you know, if, if you have studied any criminology, you understand that that kind of uh, the way that law enforcement works that way, being in the community, being on the street with those individuals um, is really uh, a beneficial way to do it. It's one of the best tools we have until yeah. mindsets change again. You know, I, right now, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm doing less crime prevention and I'm doing more of what I call death prevention. Yeah. Uh, where instead of getting the guys causing the problem, the drug dealers, getting them off the streets, I have to stay visible as much as I can to keep them from poisoning people with fentanyl. I've lost people I've known for 25 years in Skid Row. One girl I met when she was 17 years old. And I said, young lady, stay out of trouble. Well, I gave her the speech. And she finally got housed after 17 years, and she ended up overdosing in the hotel. She just got housed and overdosed on fentanyl. Uh, so these are the things that people always say, well, we, we, we don't want to put addicts in prison. Neither do I. 
But right. before Prop 47 and all these other laws came into effect, they were in long enough to get some of it out of their system and they were sent to mandatory treatment. And what that did was this, if they were, uh, as a condition of their probation, assigned to mandatory treatment, if they missed a program, that gave me the right to arrest you and bring you back. And not send you to prison, but get you back into the program. And that seemed to also have a better impact than what's yeah. happening now, which is hands off, let's just let the people do it and they'll get better on their own. And as we're finding out, they're not getting better on their own. In fact, it's even worse, they're dying. That's such yeah. a high rate. All right, I'm gonna pause for a minute, fellas, uh, because one of our long, long time uh, viewers wrote, Great Necklace Dion, what does it represent? So tell us a little bit about that, Dion. All right, well, several years ago, I, uh, as a African-American, uh, I always wanted to know what I was. I knew who I was, I'm Dion Joseph, I'm a good guy, I try to be the best guy I can be. But, you know, I got tired of going to parties and everybody telling me their backgrounds. And I was like, I don't know. I'm from America, right? So what I did was a DNA uh, uh, check. And I discovered that I was from Nigeria, the Congo, Cameroon, and all these great places. Uh, I think I'm 1% Swedish. I don't know how that happened, but we're figuring that out. <laughs> but uh, but after, two days after finding that out, I was going shopping for a wedding, an uh, African wedding. A friend of mine had an African-themed wedding. I said, okay, so let me go get my African garb. I go to this place and I bought a bunch of stuff. And the lady says, you know what? You look like a leader. And I was like, I don't know how you know that, but she's no, seriously, here, I want to give you this for free. So she gave it to me. I said, wow, this is beautiful. She said, where? She said, it's from West Africa. She says, it means one who provides direction. And I've been wearing this ever since. I'm so proud of that <laughs> connection. Make, a, making that a connection and then getting this to kind of like pay homage to uh, my ancestors. Yes. Brother. So Dion, another thing that I thought was really interesting and maybe you could speak to because it troubles so many people. I'm going to kind of make it a two-part question with a comment, hopefully. The first is that when you work the street, you oftentimes uh, look the other way when a guy might steal something because he's starving. And somewhere down the road, that person becomes someone that will give you a little information back that you can create something bigger on. Talk a little bit about <clears throat> how you determine when something kind of reaches that threshold that you have to to really do something about knowing what the condition is out there and the the uh, chances of rehabilitation in some of these cases. And then I'll come back with my second question. Well, for me, I never looked the other way, uh, you know, uh, but how I tried to change hearts and minds is when I, they did come into my custody, I tried to counsel them. Uh, I did some out of the box things. I put uh, personal poems that I wrote inspiring them, information about drug programs inside and outside of Skid Row. But for me, letting you go was not helping you. Uh, you know, uh, that that was just my way, uh, a different way of doing it. Now it's different to the extent to where it's not looking the other way, but you, because crime is so out of control to a large degree, and you also have less resource to deal with it, you kind of have to uh, uh, be very, very selective in what you do or don't. You know, some people will get mad at some cops and say, well, why didn't you arrest that guy smoking a crack pipe uh, over there on Fifth and Main? Well, because if I do, I'll be out of the field for four to five hours and probably eight if he's sick, and I won't be there to stop the stabbing or the rape, you know? So you have to kind of judge, you know, if I arrest this guy for the pipe, you know, which is now a ticket nowadays, or that minor warrant, then I'm not available to stop the shooting. 
Uh, we've had several mass shootings in Skid Row. We've had uh, uh, just cold-blooded killings. You know, that, and that reason why is because officers are so strapped. They're handling so many calls, and sometimes they get stuck on things that are, in my opinion, kind of innocuous at this moment in time, uh, you know, uh, that that it leaves the community open to danger. In a perfect world, we'd A, we have the resources, and we can enforce all the laws. And all the laws, with the exception of the violent crimes, with intention to get people to service it if we know that alcohol drugs, uh, mental illness are what's driving them to commit those crimes. Uh, for the misdemeanors, that's what I want, or the minor crimes or the low-level low felonies. But for the serious felonies, there's you're never going to see uh, uh, anybody look away from that. Uh, the, once again, the problem we run into is they're looking out serious felonies like they're misdemeanors in California. And it's very disheartening to the law enforcement community. We want to make a difference. It's not just me. We all want to make a difference. Uh, but the issue is, you know, the justice system's not working with us. So not only are we disheartened now, what we're looking at is citizens. When they talk about, oh, well, crime is down. Our stats are showing crime is down. No, no, no. Crime is not down. It's just citizens have started to give up hope because you called the officer for this trespass suspect and it's taken them 90 minutes to get there. That's why it seems like, and I know this is true because I handle community meetings. And while I'm at these community meetings, these people start venting. Or Joseph, why can't you guys stop this? Why can't you? I said, whoa, 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 back up. You got, you got my number. Why haven't you called me? Well, because we know there's not much you guys can do. You know, and it's really, really sad. You guys arrest the guy for a stabbing and next thing he's out the next day and, or his crime has been downgraded to a low level crime. So now the community's losing help and now they're now they're not even reporting crime anymore. So people have to understand uh, we do have to, uh, and it's unfortunate, sometimes we do have to kind of pick and choose our battles to a degree. The, the, the biggest things we need, in my opinion, uh, I'm, public safety is the cornerstone of anything you want to do. If you want to build a stadium and you want hundreds of thousands of people to come down and see the Lakers or a show, it has to be safe to be able to do it for people to be able to come. They're not going to come if it's not safe. Uh, and it's the same thing for places like Skate Road that we dub a recovery zone. Safety is the cornerstone. So what we, the, I think that one of the most important facets of making people's lives better is making sure you have a fully staffed and fully supported law enforcement agency that's not just supported by command, which for the most part, you know, I got to say, I, I have some great leaders that I work for, uh, but also by the upper echelons of our system, uh, you know, uh, you know, the judges, the, the, the district attorneys, which my God, now in LA County, we have just uh, public defenders as district attorney. It's the most in insane thing I've ever seen. So that's the first shoe to drop. The second thing, uh, you also need, you need our, we need to focus on mental health. Okay. And when you talk about money, I get tired of millions and millions of billions of dollars being thrown at homelessness. And where does that money go into the pockets of bureaucrats? construction companies who inflate the prices. I mean, literally it costs uh, seven to $800,000 for one unit to house one person. That's insanity. So that $1.2 billion we got a few years ago was gone just like that in a, in a few short months. And now we have to keep begging for more billions and billions of dollars that's going to social workers. I call it the homeless industrial complex. Instead of putting that money into uh, building a, a housing for people suffering from mental illness, changing the mental health laws instead of a 72 hour holes for people who we routinely have to detain for uh, who are constantly in mental health crisis or even worse, dual diagnosis. That means they're on drugs and they're mentally ill. Uh, and instead of just that revolving door of releasing them in six hours, hey, let's put them into one of these housing facilities involuntarily for about six weeks. And I say this uh, 
uh, not because I want to rob them of their rights, but we have to use our common sense here. And here's common sense. It takes about six to eight weeks for a person struggling with mental illness who hasn't taken their medications uh, in, in months. It takes about six to eight weeks for them to benefit from the therapeutic attributes of their medication. Okay. So it makes no sense to bring them in for only 72 hours or less and release them back in the street because guess what's going to happen? I'm going to find them on top of a building again and have to talk them down and bring them back to you again. And once again, that's another tax on our resources, but you're not helping the problem. So I say this, it should be six to eight weeks for several reasons. One, you got to medicate them, stabilize them. Okay. Two, you have to uh, 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 detox them because many of these individuals are on drugs too. So they're not even going to listen to you if they're full of cocaine, methamphetamines, and fentanyl, if the only thing on their mind is let me go get my next hit. They're not listening to you. They don't care about the, you know getting better. And thirdly, you have to streamline the process. See, a lot of these things don't aren't necessarily solved with money. They're solved with common sense. Streamline the process of conservatorships. Because I talked to hundreds of families over the years who wanted me to help them reunite them with their loved ones who was on Skid Row, and I would do it. But unfortunately. You know, the system releases them and now they have to find them. It's like a needle in a haystack all over again and they're calling me for help. So streamline the process of conservatorships so that their loved ones could uh, help them uh, get control of their lives. If you do those three things, uh, three things, I guarantee you're going to see about a third of the homeless problem drop uh, almost immediately overnight if the laws change. But that has to do with our legislators who you vote for. OK, be careful who you vote for, what you vote for. <laughs> those things are very, very important. Uh, we have to get back to the basics and start using common sense as it relates to help, uh, any of these major challenges that we all face. Thanks. Thanks, Dion. I, um, when you get time, go and read the chat and maybe you can answer some of the questions that people are filing in, uh, shooting towards you. I know you got to you got to take care of family first. But Mark, any thoughts before we cut Dion loose? Yeah, those were all like really great points that Dion was making. I think it's, um, you know, it, it's it, it's such a, a difficult problem, and you have to one have people that want to get help, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't want to get help, um, and some of them, you know, that are addicted and have mental health issues, uh, they don't they don't even know that they want to get help. It's you're absolutely right about titrating people on medication. You can't do it in a couple of days, getting them detoxed. And I mean, I, I just think it's not going to happen because right now, the way the political system is that you, taking people's liberties away um, in, you know, their voluntariness of, of, you know, being on the street or doing what they want, it's just going to be almost impossible I mean, you're absolutely right. Six to eight weeks to get a lot of these people straight. But, you know, the way the system is now, we can't even keep people, you know, in overnight for serious crimes. But, yeah. you know, taking their liberties away for six to eight weeks, even though it would benefit them, I think is is just a really, really um, tall ask. Yeah, it really is. And when I say six to eight weeks, even if it was just six Look, I'm not talking about taking their rights away and, and putting no, them in, of course insane, not. In, in, a, right. in insane asylums, you know, because we know the insane asylums back in the 60s, so those were cruel, inhumane places. But the mistake we always make when uh, something goes wrong is we throw the baby out with the bathwater instead of fixing the bathwater so we can bathe the baby, baby, right? So they right. threw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's the problem. No, just 
fix it. You know, just do a little reorganizing, restructuring. And I don't want to take away somebody's uh, freedom for the rest of their lives, but just you wouldn't let a heart, uh, a triple bypass patient off of a uh, operating no. table. You wouldn't let him go home the next day, would you? Absolutely. But that's not. the way. But that's the way it would be pitched. I mean, that's the yeah. what people would say. You know, you're know. taking their rights away from them, even though you're absolutely right. This is what they need to 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 get straight. Yes, and we're talking about civil liberties groups. You know what the funny thing is? Uh, there was a point where I talked to a few civil liberties groups. I won't mention a group where they were like, we absolutely agree with you, but it's our leadership. See, yeah. a lot of them know that we're right in what we're saying, but they can't go against the grain. And as long as those, and, and I'm not going to say they're cowards, it's called survivor mode. You know, they got to survive. Uh, you're right. This problem is going to persist until more people get hurt. Like I said, it has, I'll say it's gotten bad, but it hasn't gotten bad enough yet. <laughs> you yeah. know? And so I guess we, I hate that we have to wait till it gets bad enough yet. Uh, I don't want that. I want Americans and legislators to come together. Listen to first responders, firefighters, law enforcement officers who are on the street, you know, and, and give them the freedom to tell you what we're seeing every day. So you can make decisions based on that, not based on ideology. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, we're, we're basing too much policy on theory and ideology that's proven to fail instead of sitting back and saying, you know what, we're not doing this right. Let's bring all the true experts to the table, the people who are touching it, and let's see what they have to say and then make policy from there. I hope at some point we can do that before uh, we actually lose not just our, my state where I'm at, but our entire nation. It seems like it's just sliding off of a cliff. And uh, I, I yeah. shudder to think what it's going to look like maybe 10 years from now. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's crisis that drives these, you know, th these programs. It's going to have to be a crisis before somebody does something right. And, and even then, you know, you reach a crisis point and what they do may not be, you know, may look good, you know, uh, to the to the public outside. But, you know, what is it really going to be effective? You and know, you would think no. fentanyl, right? Fentanyl with so many people dying from fentanyl, you would think that would be the crisis to wake people up. But it's, there are days where I'm so disheartened by that, that I get into that dark place in my head. It's like, maybe they, this is their way of solving homelessness, you know, yeah. to let them die. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that that's the true nature of individual policymakers, which I, I don't believe it, but there are days where I'm sitting in my patrol car and I'm seeing people dying. I'm resuscitating people and bringing them back to life. And I'm going, is this the plan? You know, and of course, I, I don't want to believe that. But uh, it just almost feels like someone's profiting off of this pain. You know, it could, because there's no way any logical, uh, caring group of individuals would allow this to happen for so long without doing something yeah, to change true. it or modify Absolutely it. true. Yeah. Well, Dion, thank you. And I want to give you just one minute to say hello to our next guest mm. and then say goodbye to our next guest as we sign off. And I know your little brother is wearing a uniform, too. So thank him. And, and uh, <laughs> let me bring in. Everyone should know this face, Candace Cooley, who is the mother of Dylan Rounds, who was murdered in the Utah desert two years ago. Uh, the suspect in that case is, is uh, approaching, we hope, a trial. But uh, I thought you might want to say goodbye and maybe anything you may want to say to Candace before you, you bail. Well, Candace, before I go, I said it to you before, uh, you know, my deepest, deepest condolences to you. There is no... Uh, way to fill a, a, the hole of the heart of somebody who loses a child. You know, there's nothing like it. I can't even imagine. If I lost my child, I, I'd be a bad. I'd need to be committed. That's just me. So you're a stronger <laughs> person than I am. So I pray, I'm praying for you, and I'm so thank sorry you. for your life, and I hate that I have to go. Well, uh, I want to tell you thank you just hearing you talk. Um, 
I've had my fight with law enforcement in Dylan's case, but there's always you guys out there that remind me that some of you signed up to protect and serve. Uh, you do it and you're so amazing at it. So thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Dion. Have a great Thanks, evening. Dion. Best to you your too. family. You too. Well, Candace, it is so wonderful to have you here with us. We, uh, Mark, uh, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but Candace and I were on the phone a couple of times. I actually went out in the West Desert. I, I bought a drone a few weeks ago, and I've been picking the safest places to learn how to fly that thing. <laughs> it's and pretty I safe thought out one there. place, <laughs> one place I haven't been for a year is out to where Dylan was murdered. And, uh, and I wanted to go out there. So I called Candace as I was driving out and, and, uh, made sure that I had permission to go on to Dylan's ranch and, and, uh, get into the area. But this, this is, um, the very Western edge of Utah, if you haven't looked at the case too closely, Mark, and, and, uh, it is literally, uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles of sagebrush and small creek beds and, uh, in fact, I'm going to, while Candace is talking, bring up a map that I've created of the area just to show the number of mines that are in the area alone, let alone all the other places where uh, this young man could have been disposed of. And and Candace has been an absolute rock through this entire uh, situation, something that I don't know that many of us would have the strength to do, but I guess you just dig down and find it, Candace. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, you know, there's, there's a different stand stance people can take when something like this happens. And, um, you know, mine was dig my heels in and get justice for my son. Um, once I took that stand, I just never looked back and, and I still have it. I mean, we still fight for Dylan every day. Um, but we fight for a lot of other people now too. And, try to remind parents that there are others out there like us um, that we can, you can go to that are safe places. Um, it's, it's hard. Luckily I have an amazing support group, friends, families, business colleagues, just, I mean, so many people I call anytime. Um, not everybody has that. So that that's definitely a big asset. Um, I've had a lot of law enforcement agents that I've met throughout Dylan's case that have just been so spectacular that I don't think a day goes by anymore. I don't talk to somebody in law enforcement about either Dylan's case or somebody else's. Um, we've just kind of created a group of all of the us that we know and we trust and I can call and run things by different, you know, officers in Utah and Idaho. And, um, that's, that's a true blessing to be able to do that and help other people in Dylan's name because he was going to leave a legacy farming and, and he was robbed of that. Um, but he's still leaving a legacy um, mm -hmm. and it's growing every day, every day it's growing. So that's been, that's been a blessing. Um, you know, Mark, I, I, I think you probably have looked at this case a little bit, but I, here's obviously the state of Utah. And up here in this upper left-hand corner is the area where uh, Dylan was living. So, uh, in fact, if I just zoom back out for a moment, this is the, the so, Salt Lake so City I, area. Can I correct Please you? Please do. Okay, so this is another misconception everybody has. Dylan did not live in Lucid. Dylan went out to Lucin when he had to farm. So 
When Dylan was murdered, he had only been in Lucin for three days. Three days in the last nine months before he was murdered. He did not live there. He owned a farm there. And people um, people who don't understand uh, farming, so he would go farming his dad's. And, and he had stuff here in the Twin Falls Valley he would do. It's nothing for a farmer to travel 130 miles in between farms. And that's what Dylan did consistently for years. So he did not live in Lucid. He had a farm there and this was the first time he had ever planted it. He might've spent a month at the absolute max, a couple days at a time out there in the summer. So yeah. doing farming. So Thanks yeah. Candace. I, yeah. I appreciate that. It, uh, Mark, it, it takes from, from Salt Lake city, uh, just about three hours to go around the lake and down these darn dirt roads and out to that location. But one thing that I, I didn't know if you'd seen this or not, Candace, but I thought it was really interesting just thinking about the number of active mines mm-hmm. that are in the area. These are mines that are actually being worked right now, but these are the number of holes that have been dug in addition to that all through that area yeah. So we have, that are recorded, not, yeah. not we have, all those that aren't. We had a volunteer group of retired miners, actually, and I i bet you the map I have of mines that they went out and searched, and, and I mean, we're talking guys who are getting down in them, and I'm not talking people who put it on camera or said, here we are in this mine. I bet you he sent me over 300 mines Yep. In the immediate area that they went down and, and this team of guys and professional miners um, and we kept it on the down low. Right. Because these guys, they reached out to us. They didn't want any credit. They didn't want their names out there. But I mean, I have maps and maps and maps and they're just unreal of what this group of guys went out and did for us. And. You know, then there was people in the background filming it on YouTube. Oh, look, we're going in this mine that, you know, you can't even squeeze down, but we're going to look for Dylan Rounds in it. Um, These guys know the area. They mine the area. Um, I am am pretty confident in that the mines are thoroughly searched and my son is not in a mine. Um, Not to mention the fact Brennan was lazy. He, he's not going to go and get repelling gear and climb into a mine, right? I mean, the only thing you can do with Dylan in a mine is put him in one of the ones that you could just drop him down. And those are the ones that have thoroughly been checked. Um, and I am confident in the group. <clears throat> so from GPS locations to weather report, I mean, it's, it's I don't know. I, I bet you it's well over... 800 pages I have from this group of what they went out and did on their own and documented and took the time to document, not just say we were out there, like took the time to fully document it is truly amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, they didn't want any public attention. They didn't want anything. They didn't want anything. They just wanted to help us. But that's that's what Dylan touched in people. That's once his story got out and it was the American farmer and this 17-year-old who bought his own farm. Um, it brought together a lot of good people, it did. Yeah. It's, it's been pretty remarkable. Um, I, yeah. uh, I don't know if this will be helpful at all either, uh, Mark. I know you've been in so many of these remote areas 
uh, investigating cases. But this just gives you a feel. Uh, this is just a little bit west of Dylan's farm. Uh, and this is a place where the suspect in this case was, was, uh, um, squatting. What do you, what do you call squatting. that? Squatting. Squatting, yeah. there we go. Thank you. Yes. But, um, it just gives you an idea of how vast this area is. Yeah, and, it's, and, uh, imagine, well, you, you know, you remember I, I spent three and a half years in the Western edge of Wyoming in my okay, first office in the FBI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is right. I'm yeah. familiar with the weather and the, that kind of terrain. Yeah. yeah. It's well and, and, and the hard thing about where that out there in Lucene is it's it's sandy, so it's it's always ever changing. Yeah. So even like all the all the different drones and all the different, you know, lenses and different ways to analyze you can get everything out there looks like a disturbance compared to yesterday. Yeah. Right? It's just kind of an ever changing landscape. And so it's really hard to say, oh, well, that looks like it's out of place because everything looks in its place while looking out of place at the same time. So how, um, you know, on Sunday, uh, it would have been June 5th and we had a bunch of private choppers came out, uh, another good group of people who just did it on their own. And I was finally able to get up in the air. And, and it's like York was explaining to me. He said, you people think you can see from the air he says i have flown over people who are alive trying to wave me down right that i've flown over them three times before we ever seen them like people think you get in the air and you can just see everything and a bird's eye view is not what i thought it was that's for sure well i think you i think you you know you said something that's really important and these are the kinds of things that i look at when i'm you know doing these kinds of assessments you know in homicide cases that I've been doing for, you know, 25 years now. Um, you said that uh, Brenner is lazy. And the other thing is that people go to places that they have a level of comfort with. They're familiar with. And yes. That, that's- yeah, that they, they're familiar with. And people are generally lazy. They are. They yeah. In homicide cases, you know, in the movies, they bury bodies all the time, you know, right. in the middle of the But in real life, that doesn't, it doesn't happen. Hap- it doesn't happen because it's very difficult to do it. It's yeah. a lot of work. And especially in the terrain that was the out terrain, there. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, we'd always have people say, well, you know, um, people call in when, when everything was so crazy in the beginning. Oh, we seen, we know we use Dylan's pickup. Like we know that, um, you know, we seen Dylan's pickup going out of town in Montello or seen it headed towards Idaho. So Brenner would not drive on the interstate on a regular day or on the highway. Absolutely wouldn't happen. He absolutely would not. So you're going to tell me he has a body in the back of a pickup that's not his. And so now he's going to go drive on the highway. Right. No, exactly. Absolutely not going to happen. He's right there somewhere. We just, you know, we got more resources. We're not the same family we were before. We're not. I'm not the same person. I know I got resources and allies. I can come in that we can hit it. Um, he's not far because Brenner never went far. Well, and, you know, he's not a mastermind, right? No. People give these people too much credit, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what they think they're going to do, you know, to hide from the crime. But he didn't do very much to to, to keep people from focusing on him. So, you know, 
You're yeah. absolutely right. It's and all of Dylan's RTT data matches that Brenner never left the area that day, and and that's yeah. all disclosed in in the hearing. That's nothing. That's secret. Um, he never left that area. Dylan's phone, and it continued to move. So, um, you know, pretty much from what we can tell and what we know that we haven't released because we like to keep our, our search areas private because you know we don't want a bunch of people out there trampling, but. We've got a pretty good idea of what we're going to hit this summer. Um, we got a lot more of a grasp on it and being able to see the RTT yeah. data and, and um, you know, and and we'll do the best the best we can. Um, you know, unfortunately, Box Elder will never go out and try to locate Dylan. That's um, they haven't since the first summer. So, you know, we're kind of on our own on that. Um, and that's OK. Uh, frankly, at this point, I'd rather have it that way. So, Candace, why don't you take a moment and tell people where we are on the criminal case and uh, if you have any sense of a timeline, what that is. And then uh, we'll talk about a couple other things. So right now we are set out for a preliminary hearing finally uh, May 14th, 15th and 16th. the only hearings we've ever had has all been about what attorneys Brenner's entitled to. He ended up with two, even though he was only entitled to one. But, you know, pick your battles wisely. So we didn't fight that one. So that's where we're at is waiting for May. Um, luckily, I've been busy on enough cases that have turned out well that I thought back in November, May was the end of the world. And I'd never make it that long. And now I'm going, holy smokes, it's only like three months. I've almost made it. Like maybe, maybe something will happen. But you know, a prelim really isn't much. I mean, it's really not um, that much. And honestly, in in our justice system and and hearing Dion talk about it, you know, um, who knows what the next delay could be, right? We haven't had a single thing that hasn't been delayed. So I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a lot of faith in our justice system that this isn't going to be pushed out for some reason or another. So, um, I've just really focused on digging into other cases. It's awesome. We got to help Tammy bring Jaden Fishman home last week. That's just truly amazing. That's all been the awareness through Dylan's legacy. Um, so I just, you know, keep my heels dug in and keep, keep pushing forward for other families while we wait for our injustice justice system, because right now Dylan has no rights and Brenner has all of them. And that's not how it should be. It's always the way it is. It's unreal. Yeah. Unfortunate. Yeah, it is. It is. Something needs to change. Um, Unfortunately, in my opinion, too many families don't have the support. They don't have the strength and they don't have the means to stand up and fight because if more did, uh, you know, there's power in numbers and that's what makes a change. And right now we just don't have the numbers that can fight for a change. No, but other yep. families have you, and that's right, that and that's, that's really what we want to change, and that's that's where the power and numbers come. I mean, you yeah. just, you know, everybody needs a good leadership. Everybody needs a good place to go, and that's what we want Dylan's legacy to be: is come to us, we'll fight yeah. for you, we'll help you. Now, Candace, have you got your new website? Up and rolling. Oh, oh, yeah. So we're working on that. So we got the domain and everything. Dylan's legacy is reserved. Um, I've been so busy on a few other cases. And of course, as always, Jazz from Missing an American Network is just absolutely phenomenal. And so she's been helping me work on it. Um, luckily, I think I'm going to have the time in March to get down to Phoenix and spend some time with her so we can get it live. We kind of, it's hard to do it remotely with each other. We kind of need to be side by side and um, she's that, she's that side of it for me. Cause, um, 
I can do the public and the talking and the keep everything going, but she's got the, she's got the guru on how to do all that stuff. That that's a little out of my realm. I don't know how to build a website, but we are working on it. Um, we got Dylan's legacy up and running and his store on Etsy. Um, we're working on some amazing fundraisers for the canine unit, um, that we'll be announcing soon. So yeah, we, we finally got a lot of forward momentum and, and, Support. I mean, I it's like you know, Mike. Doctor Phil's picked up Dylan's show. I'll go do that next week. Um, there's going to be one of the state Utah legislators there that is fighting to make warrants actually be executed um, instead of just like Brenner's. Yeah, you can issue a warrant, but if you don't execute it, it's only it's not even as good as the paper it's written on, right? Like it's fine to say, "Hey, James Brenner, you know, you have a warrant out for felony aggravated assault." But we're not going to arrest you. So what's the point of the warrant? Yeah. Um, you, you know, know um, <laughs> one one really cool piece of news that I don't know if you're aware of or not is the state of Utah a couple of years ago passed a, a statute that will not allow someone convicted and sentenced to life in prison on a homicide where the body hasn't been recovered to ever get out of prison unless they tell where the right. body is. Yes. So, yeah. um, and I'd love to see every state in the country pick up that kind of a mentality but yeah. uh you, you'll eventually bring that young man home and, oh, and we will. i just we, I, I just no salute doubt. you for your strength we will uh, how can people find you candace so right now we've changed everything on facebook to it is just dylan's legacy now and it'll say a fresh official site uh, by Missing in America Network. Um, if you ever see anything, and it's not just Dylan's case, any of the cases I'm working on when we pick up and create a Facebook page for awareness because we're trying to find them, if it's not by Missing in America, um, stay away from it. There are so many Find Dylan Rounds and Justice for Dylan's pages out there, and they're all fake, and they've all got fake information. Um, if it's not powered by Missing in America and I have to do with it, it's fraudulent. And and I cannot stress enough to people, if if a loved one goes missing, if you're trying to find somebody, go to the Missing in America Network. They will give you a safe place. They will control it. They will make the Facebook page be what it needs to be. Um, and that you won't find yourself in the position I found myself in for the first six months. Um, so they, they're amazing. And, and it's nonprofit. You don't have to pay them anything. And, and they just do it. And they're amazing at it. Well, th- thank you. And, and Candace, we, we've already talked about this, but we, we're going to get you back on choir practice yes. to talk a little more. Um, I, I promised Mark we would be done at nine because I turn into a pumpkin at nine <laughs> Utah time. And uh, I want to give him the last word with you before we say goodbye. Okay. I, I, you know, I have, I have dealt with parents of murdered children my entire career um, in so many of these cases. And some of the parents are amazing. Like you, um, I worked a case, a uh, double homicide uh, when I was a detective and I am, st- that was what, 35, 40 years ago. I'm still friends with, with those uh, parents of, of the, murdered kids and they were like you push that every single day and you know it's amazing you're amazing and parents like that uh are are just you know you're a lifeline for so many people and i applaud you for that and i'm just i'm thankful because there are so many families that 
don't have that kind of support that don't have that internal strength to, to move forward like you have. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing to see. Yeah. Well, and I just, you know, I want to leave everybody with a thought and, and I, everything I've been through, um, people just need to remember that awareness is with, is the key. And with awareness comes education with education comes change. And that's what we all have to remember to fight for. Um, it, it, it takes the first step and that's, that's awareness. Um, be aware of all these different things. People, you can't say you don't agree with the law if you're not fully aware of it and you, you got to educate yourself and you got to step out and change it, right? You have to take the proper steps. You can't just say, um, I want this to change and just never do anything about it. And so I just, I encourage parents everywhere to keep that in mind, um, you know, just saying, hey, I support this organization. I support Dylan's Legacy. Then then when we ask for votes and we ask for stuff to change, go out and do it. Because just saying you support Dylan's Legacy and what we're fighting for isn't enough. Get your education. Make sure you agree with us and, and then make the change. And it starts and it starts with the lawmakers too. You have yeah. to elect lawmakers who will support these kinds yes. of programs and yep. support these kinds of laws. Yeah. And it takes a lot. It's it's taken me well what 14 months since I really started fighting, but we finally have legislature standing up and listening. Finally. Yeah. And it has been an exhausting battle. But I'm so sure. now I call everybody, you've supported us in the fight for Dylan and the fight for so many others. Now you pressure your legislature, you go out and vote, you you make the people get into office who make the changes that you Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Uh, so action, you know, take action. Thanks, Candace. I hope that uh, you have a safe trip down south and, yeah. and uh, say hello to the okay. doc and Will we'll do. plan on uh, getting a recap. When yes. uh, we get you back. So okay, nice to meet you, Candace. You too. Really. Thank and you guys. Stay strong. Yep. Have a have a great evening. You Goodbye. Too. And everybody get oh, go back and yep. check all the chat, Candace, and maybe you can okay. answer what questions people have. And okay. there's answer. there's a lot of folks weighing in. Okay. Thanks I'll so much. Now. Okay. Thanks, Take Candace. care. Bye. Wow. Isn't she amazing? That was yeah. I mean, parents like that are uh, I just and I've I've dealt with and met so many of them, and they're just amazing people. They're amazing. They have such internal strength. It's just you, you wonder where it comes from, really. It, I mean, because yeah. I'm like Dion, you know, I can't even imagine um, one of my children being, you know, being killed. It just would be devastating. And, I mean, I don't know how you recover, but some parents yeah. can push through and and – do wonderful things. And she obviously has. Well, she, she's a tough cookie, but uh, she's earned every stripe she has. I'll tell you. Oh yeah. Um, Mark, I, I really wanted to talk a little bit about spree killings, but we're going to have to put this spree back killing, together yeah. again. Yeah, well, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I, but I'd like you to take a minute and just tell people what you're doing now. Uh, tell them about your book, spree killers. And, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll say goodnight to everybody. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still filming. I do a lot of filming. Uh, I'm filming uh, in a week and a half uh, for another television show, an episode on um, serial killers. Um, 
true crime stuff, you know, just weighing in on, you know, how I assess, you know, these different cases and, you know, what, what their behavior means. Um, I'm still publishing um, journal articles, writing and uh, consulting, doing a lot of uh, consulting and expert testimony work and, um, you know, uh, talking about spree killers. You know, I have my book, Spree Killers, uh, Practical Classifications for Law Enforcement and Criminology. And, you know, it's really the first look at spree killers. It's the first pure book on spree killers. There's there's books out there that talk about spree killers, but they're a mix of serial murders and mass murders. And here, you know, Catherine and I have really called pure spree killers. And, um, you know, it's, it's the largest collection of, of spree killers and, and how we define that and how so many of these cases in the news get listed as serial murders when they're not actually serial murders. They're, they're spree murders. So, but we can do that another time. Absolutely. That'd be great. I know people are weighing in and they uh, want to ab- obviously have us continue on. So we're going to have Mark back. In fact, Mark's already agreed. He's going to stop in and co-host with me choir practice from time to time. And, and uh, we're <laughs> going to, we're going to have fun every time we get together. It seems like we never hit all the things we want to talk about. Cause, Cause you always have great, you always have great guests. That's why we, we did have great guests tonight, didn't we? And, no, and I'll tell do. you, when you think of the kind of cops like a Dion Joseph who are out there trying to do the job every single day, because uh, I don't know that I could do the job today. Yeah, I mean, it's and he's in such a tough environment. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's I, I, you know, really, I think that's amazing. Yeah, he's well, an amazing individual. But we're, I think we're it's lucky to associate with people like him. But I feel lucky to associate with you. I can't believe all the fun talks we've had over the years, and uh, I, I consider you a very dear friend. Thank you. Yeah, we've been we've been friends for multiple decades. So absolutely, you're well. You're older than I might be older than you. I don't know. Let's, so I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve let's, that. Let's not talk about who's <laughs> older than who. All right. <laughs> all right. Hey, everybody. I don't thanks in, for I don't want to be in the one up position. Yeah, exactly. I want to thank everybody for for joining Profiling Evil tonight. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. And, uh, and of course, if you like audio podcasts, please check out Profiling Evil podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. And share choir practice with your friends. We're only doing it on the first Monday of every month. And as you've seen tonight, it is going to be top drawer stuff with not a lot of time to do anything else but really enjoy content so mark thanks so much and to everybody out there thank you so much absolutely have a great night Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing. 
but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.